Let me, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll take a look at this passage. Jesus, this morning, um, I'm just reminded of a few things. I'm reminded, first and foremost, of the foolishness of preaching in some ways. Jesus, that this is your word, and there's so much in it. And to even try to, to say that I know anything or that somehow this is... I don't know, that it stands in, in match to who you are is foolishness. And so God, in that, in that vein, I ask that you would make up for all my shortcomings. That Jesus said, uh, that the words that I speak, that you would somehow transform them from, from speaker to audience and that they would be something that you actually want to say to your people. Jesus, we are open for you. We are hungry for you. We need you. And for the shipwrecks that are in our lives currently, Jesus, would you speak to those? And would you provide peace? Would you provide solace? Would you give us your heart, Lord, this morning? And so I pray this in your name. Amen. Yeah, so kind of like we were talking about, I think... The thing that occurs to me the most in this passage, the thing that bothers me, um, is kind of where it sits in the context of Acts, right? So I'll even, so maybe some of you, have you ever seen the movie Unbroken or heard of the book Unbroken, the story of, yeah, the book was crazy. So for those who don't know, Louis Zamperini, he's like this runner from Torrance, California. Uh, he kind of had a rough childhood, was always kind of a delinquent. But he channels his, his delinquency into running. Like his brother ch challenges him to do so. And in the process becomes like this amazing runner. Like qualifies for the Olympics, like does all this. But eventually, you know, World War II happens and he decides, oh, I'm going to enlist. And so imagine that, like... You're, one minute you're on your way to the Olympics, next minute you're in the military, and that's, that's the story of your life. But part of what happens with Louis Zamperini and being in the military is that he has this plane that he's flying, right? Uh, and whatever, the plane gets shot and like messed up, and so eventually they put the crew in a different plane. And this plane wasn't nearly as was structurally sound, wasn't nearly as good, and they all knew it. Like, everyone knew that this plane was a disaster, and they were kind of upset that they were given this plane. And yet, he gets in this plane, the whole crew is there, they're, like, trying to fly, and immediately, engine troubles, things start going wrong. It's like, oh, we're not, this is not going to fly. We are actually going to die. This is the end of it. And they crash into the ocean. And what's crazy is that a lot of the crew members die, but three of them live. And what's even crazier than that is that they survive at sea. I think at that point, the longest anyone had maybe survived lost at sea was maybe 27 days, something like that. They survived 46, 47, was, was it Creed? Yeah, it was like 47 days at sea. Imagine that. Right, like trying to invent ways to eat food, to like catch water, to all these things, and you have sharks underneath you. Right, at one point, uh, they see a plane flying overhead. They shoot a flare, thinking, "Oh, maybe they're going to save us." No, that plane starts shooting bullets at their boat. Right, it's a Japanese bomber, and so they're like, "Oh crap!" So they have to like jump into the water to dodge the bullets, but in the water is sharks. Right, and so then it's like, "Oh great, we can't stay here either." And so they go back on the boat, and all these things—the the ship, the boat, the little raft that they're in—is completely messed up. 
Anyway, 40-odd days pass, and they finally, like, they're at their wit's end. They think they bump up against an island. Actually, it's a boat. And they're like, yes, our lives are saved. Uh, but what they don't know is that actually it's a Japanese boat. And so what they end up happening to them is they get become prisoners of war in a Japanese camp. Like, they get sent to a place called Execution Island, right? So imagine that. Your plane, first of all, the plane that you had that you liked got destroyed, and you got put in this lesser plane that you knew was a disaster. You get in the lesser plane, the plane crashes, you get lost at sea. You're lost at sea for 40-something days. You have a friend die. You get shot at by planes. There's sharks underneath you trying to eat you. And then you finally find rescue, and it's actually the enemy. And now you're going to a prison camp. It's just one thing after another. And I see that in this passage. Like Paul, if you remember correctly, chapter 21, he's going to Jerusalem and all his friends are like, don't go. Whatever you do, don't go. Buy a milkshake, get some ice cream, don't go to Jerusalem. Like you could do anything in the world. But Paul goes to Jerusalem, right? And there's a riot and he gets beat up and then he gets arrested. And that's like a form of saving. Interestingly enough, you get arrested. Um, and so then... He gets passed around, right? We talked about this, all of the places where he shares his testimony. You know, you, we talk about Paul, and we know Paul's letters. Paul's letters get circulated to the church. In this moment, Paul is getting passed around like one of his own letters, like to this person, and they don't know what to do with him, so they send it to the next person. And we're tempted to think in the context of Luke that all of this happens really quickly. But there's this small little verse in chapter 24 that tells us otherwise. Paul gets held by Felix for 24, not 24, 20, no, 24 months, two years. He gets held by Felix for two years, right? And before this, before he gets held by Felix, when he first gets arrested, when all this stuff goes down, he gets told, you know, you're going to testify before Rome. And then he gets arrested and held for two years. And I don't know how you hold on to the, a promise for two years, but you're there you are in jail fighting for your life, you know, never exactly sure what's happening to you. Two years, you finally get whatever passed on to a successor, and then the successor passes you on to somebody else, and now you're finally on your way to Rome, right? Like this is a moment that you've been waiting for two years, and what happens? Shipwreck. And to make matters worse, it's a storm and a wreck that he saw coming. That's the annoying part. Is that like the beginning, he tells them in verse 10, I see that our voyage is actually going to result in disaster. Like, and Paul's not saying this like from some prophetic stance. Like Paul's like, no, this actually is the time, like commentators would have said, because of the time of the year that this was, it is actually a horrible time to sail. That right after this, actually, they probably would have closed the port so that you couldn't travel during this weather. And yet Paul somehow gets roped into this. In fact, this might not have even been his first shipwreck. Uh, some commentators would say, like, the stuff that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 11 about being shipwrecked, like, three times, like, that, some of that would have happened before this moment. And so imagine, he's like, nope, I've been shipwrecked before, this is bad, let's not do this. And they're like, oh, no, it's totally fine, we're going to do this, it's going to be great. And then shipwreck. 
Paul gets caught in a storm that he knew would come, but was still forced to go. And to me, this is just like the Murphy's Law of missionary journeys. Anything that can go wrong is going wrong. You know, even speaking of history, if you, you've probably heard stories of, of war heroes and great war generals talking about, oh man, we're going to take the island, and the way that you take the island is you burn the ships. You know, like, and it's supposed to inspire some sort of bravery from your team. Right, and, and so we hear these stories, and we're like, "Yeah, we got to be committed. We got to be all in." And you look at this passage, and let's just call it what it is. It is one thing to burn your own ships or to even sink your own ships. It's another thing to have them wrecked. Like to burn them is voluntary. You choose to do that. No one asks to be shipwrecked. It just happens to you, and you're left to deal with what it means. Right? And some of you feel that way. It's one thing to burn ships. It's another thing to be shipwrecked. And the reality is that sometimes a shipwreck is the result of our own making. Like, we know that we should not do what we're getting ready to do, right? Like, all the signs say, don't do this. Like, I don't know. You, you know you shouldn't say that thing to that person. But something in you is just like, nope, I just, I got to say it. It's got to come out. And then you say it, and then kabloom, shipwrecked, all bad. And you're like, well, I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. I did it anyway. Uh, and, you know, John Dangler, he, he used to say this thing where, uh, you know, sometimes it's not that we are punished for our sins as much as sometimes we are punished by our sins. And then sometimes the shipwrecks are the result of other people's making. And we're just dragged along. Like, we were the voice of reason saying, you probably should not do this. This is bad news. Don't do it. Get ice cream, get a milkshake, but whatever you do, don't do this. And still, it happens. And we're dragged along, left to determine the meaning. And maybe this is the first thing that jumps out at me about this passage, is that shipwrecks happen. And our calling doesn't guarantee their absence, but they also aren't negated by their presence. It appears to me, kind of like we were talking about, that God has a funny way of, of giving you some sort of destination, some sort of idea, a, a vision, a calling, but that he doesn't tell you all the things that are going to happen in the middle. Like, I'm reminded of John 11 and the story of Lazarus. And that passage is so interesting to me because Jesus gets approached by Martha and Mary and say, you're one that you love is about to die. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the, the, what, this sickness will not end in death. And that's a comforting word. But what he doesn't tell them is what? Lazarus is going to die. Like, Lazarus will die in the middle. Like, it's not the end. It doesn't end in death. But he will die. Right? And that just feels a little cruel. Like, why would you even do that? Like, why would you not? Like, why get my hopes up? And some of you... Feel that way. You, you had a vision for a thing, but you weren't told what it would entail. Right? And you could feel like, God, you deceived me. And sometimes he doesn't tell us because, you know, we wouldn't go. And sometimes, even if he did tell us, it wouldn't change how much it hurts. 
right? Like it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to feel it, to experience it in your bones. Sometimes God gives us a vision for a thing, but he doesn't tell us what it will entail. And that's the hard part about this passage. Rarely ever are we given the full picture. And yet, our callings don't guarantee the absence of shipwrecks. And similarly, shipwrecks don't negate the presence of our calling. The test for us is whether or not we can hold fast to that when everything around us says the opposite. I don't know if Paul would have been thinking of Rome after all these years. Two years is a long time to hold on to a vision, especially when you're trying to fight for your survival. But it, it, it's still interesting to me that what we do in shipwrecks reveals who we are and what we believe. When things go south, everyone kicks in to do what they know how to do, right? Like they're getting rid of cargo, they're getting rid of tackle, they're throwing everything overboard, they're trying to save themselves, and when none of it works, they abandon all possible hope. Everything is gone. It's all over. They've reached the end of themselves. And who can blame them? Because it's what they were trained to do. Like Paul, they had been in storms before, and they probably had survived them. Even later, when Paul gives them this word, it's like, no, we're going to like sneak on a boat and try to get away, because we just can't do this. The belief is rooted in themselves. They go from losing all hope to making one final ditch effort to save themselves. And while running and despairing might look like two completely dis or responses, they're rooted in the same soil of disbelief. And Paul offers another way. In the chaos and the storm, when everything looks like it's near its end, Paul has faith saying, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. First of all, I love that he gives them like a little bit of an I told you so. Like, I told you this was going to end this way. You should have listened to me. I might be a tent maker, but I know what I'm talking about every once in a while. Uh, and then he says, but I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. There's more work to do. And we can despair, we can run, or we can trust, we can listen for, trust in the promise of God. It is our choice, and it is definitely a choice. How many of you guys like Audible? Do anybody listen to audiobooks? Audible is great, man. It is a lifesaver. If you're like somebody who's like, oh man, I can't read books, Audible is clutch. Like, because sometimes you're driving, sometimes you're washing dishes, and it's a way to like read books without actually reading books. And so I have like a list of books that I like want to read, and sometimes I get stuck in the middle of that list. Um, but Audible helps me out. And so I'll have a list, but then every once in a while, Audible will, like, run a sale of some sort. And if you, like, who, like, do people have memberships Audible, like, get the credits? Just, okay, cool. Creed, you understand. So if you, like, follow Audible, 
The problem with Audible sometimes is that you'll have credits and you'll have books in your heart that you want to read, but then the second you like use your credit, they like run a sale that requires a credit. And you're like, dang it, why did I just do that? And it's always like a two-for-one deal. Like if you just waited a little bit longer, you could have gotten an extra book or another book or whatever. Um, and so Audible does this to me all the time. And so I just learned to just hold on to my credits in the event of a sale. Um, and so... This happened recently, actually, and what's cool is that when this happens, I end up listening to books that I wouldn't otherwise choose, right? And so I ended up listening to this book on uh, James Garfield, uh, the 20th president of the United States of America. I know nothing about history, people. Like, in school... I just, I don't know if I had great history teachers, and even if I did, maybe I just didn't pay attention. That is also a possibility. But I know nothing about history. So James Garfield is super interesting to me because he was a president that did not want to be president. Like, he didn't even run for president. Like, so check this out. Like, at that, the, the Republican convention is happening. James Garfield is going to make a speech for somebody else. Right. He goes and he's like, hey, guys, you should vote for this person. I think this person's a great candidate. They should be the one that represents our party. He gets up, gives a speech. Everyone hears a speech and they're kind of like, yeah, we could vote for him or we could vote for you. And he's the one who gets nominated to be the Republican candidate for the party. Like, either you're really good at your job or you're horrible at your job. It's like when you, like, I don't know if guys, guys or girls, maybe you know this, like, your friend kind of likes somebody. And so you're, like, trying to be their hype person. You're like, yeah, okay, I got you. Like, I'm, I'm going to get in. I'm going to, like, put in a good word for you. It's going to be awesome. And then, like, say you do that and then the person starts liking you. Like, you have fundamentally failed your job, right? Like, worst friend ever. And so Garfield goes, and he, everyone's, like, super happy. Like, everyone's like, yes, we got Garfield as our nominee. And he's like, no, no, this is horrible. He's like, anybody that I've ever seen have, like, a, an aspiration for the office. Their life is ruined. He's like, I just want my life. Like, I like my life. I like my wife, my kids, my farm. Like, please don't do this to me. And he doesn't even, like, at that point, this was before, like, it was commonplace for, for nominees to kind of make spe speeches around the country on behalf of themselves. So he actually doesn't really give a whole lot of speeches. He's, like, in his house, running his farm, and occasionally people would come up to his house and he'd say something. But he wins. He wins the presidency. And everyone's like, yes. And he's still like, no, no, this is not what I want. So imagine this. Four months into a job that you did not ask for, that you did not want, that you did not run for, you get shot. I would be hot. Like, you have no idea. So, interestingly enough, the guy who shoots him was also in a shipwreck and, like, felt, like, called by, he felt chosen by the universe for some, something great in his life. Um, minor detail was that it would involve shooting the president. And so, the crazy thing is that the bullet actually doesn't kill Garfield. It doesn't. Like, he gets shot in the back, but it, like, misses all the major organs in his body, and he lives. And, and so, because he's the president, everyone's freaking out, right? This would have been 15, maybe 16 years after the assassination of Lincoln. And so, imagine that. Your second president 
just assassinated within 20 years. Everyone's freaking out. And in fact, Abraham's eldest son, his only surviving son, was a part of Garfield's cabinet. And he's like, oh no, like I've seen this before. Like we got to do something. So he runs and grabs the doctor that worked on his father but couldn't save him. And brings him to Garfield and says, hey, like, do something. And this doctor, like, assumes command, like, total command over the situation. But because this is, like, a time where things like sterilization and sanitization, or sanitation, gosh, I'm inventing words. Uh, Those things are, like, still kind of debated and contested. This doctor doesn't believe in that. He's like, oh, no, germs? What? What are germs? They're invisible. They're stupid. And he's, like, poking and prodding in this person's wound with dirty hands. Like, this doctor is, like, incompetent to the extreme. Like, he's a doctor. He knows something about medicine, but obviously not enough, at least at this point, right? So eventually... Like, the the president doesn't die. He's, like, good for 79 days. Like, he, imagine this. You're alive, bullet wound, 79 days, doctor's messing with you. Uh, and there are moments where it seems like the president's going to break through, but then a lot of times he's just sick and vomiting and infection and all this other stuff is just bad. But the, the thing that happens is eventually the president dies. Right? Like, it's tragic. Six months into a presidency, a job that he didn't ask for, he dies. Uh, And they open him up, they do the autopsy, and they realize, actually, it wasn't the, first of all, all the sides that they were scanning for the bullet was on the wrong side the whole time. That actually, he wasn't shot, and the bullet wasn't on his right side, it was on the left side. And actually, the bullet didn't kill him, but it was all the affection in his lungs and all this other stuff that killed him. And, and I think the thing that was so hard for the country, aside from losing the president that they loved, was the fact that the doctor at the time would get up in front of journalists and in front of newspapers, and he'd say, oh, everything is fine. Everything is great. The president is doing wonderful. He's recovering. You know, don't worry about it. And, and to make matters worse, he, like, believed this about himself, that, like, oh, no, I have this totally under control. Like, yeah, sure, everything is going wrong, but any minute now, the president will turn around. We just got to do this. We just got to do that. He, like, banished all the other doctors. Like, even the inventor that he had come in, Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone, is, like, doing a sound induction, trying to find the bullet. He's, like, controlling that experiment. All of this is going on in the president. And, yeah, all this happens. I got super lost in my notes. And... He realizes, and I think the country realizes, actually, if he had just said that we don't know what we're doing, he actually could have saved the president. But because he was operating underneath the illusion that actually I know what I'm doing, I've done this before. He kills the president, essentially. Like, yes, he, the president got shot. There's no denying that. But actually, it's the incompetence and the selfishness and the arrogance of the doctor that kills the president, essentially. And I just think that's such a scary prophetic word. Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm much the same way. I see situations arise in my life. And I'm like, oh, no, I totally have this under control. Right? Like, I just have to look within me. I just have to think about what smarter people have said. I just have to give it one more shot, try one more angle. And because I underestimate the situation at hand and overestimate my belief in myself, uh, when in reality, I don't trust God. And the result is that people die. 
When we trust ourselves in times of crisis, people die. When it comes down to it, our actions either communicate trust or distrust, faith or lack thereof. And we can fight and scream and kick or in despair, or we can listen for, trust in, hope in the promise of God. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my friend back in Cayman uh, a while ago, and he told me that maybe in the same way that love is a choice, maybe faith is a choice too. There are moments in our lives where we don't feel particularly faith-filled, and we have to choose in that moment what is true. As sad as it is to know something solely from a theological perspective, some cognitive assent to the truth, sometimes it's all we have. And what does our response in times of storm and shipwreck say about our belief? Some despair, some run, but Paul trusts, and it's the truest form of apologetic in his life. This passage is the inverse of Jonah. Jonah is a man running away from God, right, and gets caught in a storm. And the only way to save the team is to throw Jonah over the ship, right? Whereas in this moment, Paul is on a way to his assignment, and the storm comes. And the only way to save the team is for everybody to stay. It is true. Sometimes shipwrecks change us, but sometimes they just reveal what's already there. When you choose to listen for and trust in the promise of God, interestingly enough, you become the leader. Right? And we see that in Paul. This is a leadership text in some way. I mean, yeah, we were supposed to run spiritual leadership this summer. That did not happen. This is it. This is what spiritual leadership is about. It's about hearing from God, trusting in God, allowing that to be the thing that anchors your life, your soul, everything you are. And because of that, because you are anchored in that truth, you are then able to be removed from crisis and from situations because then you can then speak life into them because they're actually not yours to bear. Like, you can be bigger than the situation at hand. You can speak life to the situation at hand. And that's what we see Paul doing in this moment. Paul, the irony of this passage is that Paul is in chains. He's a prisoner. And even at the end, when all the stuff goes south and they're wanting to, like, figure out what to do, should we kill the prisoners? Should we take them aboard? Paul is still part of that, like, we just might kill this guy after all this. And yet, in this moment, Paul is the leader. Everyone responds to his word. When the, soldier, when the sailors try to run, Paul says, nope, they got to stay if we want to live. And what do the soldiers do? They cut the lifeboat. They're like, yep, you said it, it's done. This idea, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of a funny little twist that those who try to save their lifeboat will lose it. And those who are willing to lose their lifeboat for Jesus' sake will live. Paul is what Friedman calls a differentiated leader. You know, certain self-help circles will probably tell you that event plus response equals outcome. We can't control the events of our lives, right? But what we do have some say in is our response. And if that's so, then what does our response in times of shipwreck say about our lives? Sometimes they just reveal what's already there. And in Paul's case, it reveals that he's a disciple through and through. 
And to me, it occurs to me this morning that so many of you are in shipwrecks right now. And when you, you know, whether that's your, your family, your microchurch, what have you, sometimes it's the relationships that are around you. There is a ship, there's a storm, there's wreckage that's happening. And maybe what we have to do, maybe the call this morning is for us to listen to what God has to say to us in the middle of the storm and the shipwreck. Worship team, you can, you can come on up if you would like. You may be in a storm, but when you listen for the voice of God, when you put your trust in what you hear, you become the leader in the situation. When you allow yourself to be anchored in that promise and not the approval of others, you can make decisions that the situation calls for. But you have to first and foremost listen. If I can make a confession this morning, miracles make me uncomfortable. Not that I don't believe in them. I totally believe in miracles, right? The fact that, like, we transfer from death to life is a miracle. The fact that, you know, we become more like Jesus over time. If you, like, remember who you were before Jesus and who you are now, like, that is a miracle, right? All of this is a miracle. And so it's not that I don't believe in miracles. I do, and I think you're in for a sad life if you don't. But I think what makes me uncomfortable about miracles a lot of times, if I'm honest, is that in order for miracles to happen, not in order for them to happen, but a lot of times there's a situation that exists that necessitates a miracle. Does that make sense? Like, it's cool that people, like, people get healed from cancer. That's awesome. But man, why do they have to get cancer in the first place? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I struggle with from time to time. Yes, you survive an accident. That is good. Like, whatever, accidents happen and everyone survives. That's a miracle. Thank you. And yet, at the same time, why did the accident have to happen? Like, could it have gone differently any other way? And, and I see that in this passage, in that Paul and everyone gets delivered, and not a single person gets harmed. Right, 276 people get saved, but the ship doesn't. The ship doesn't make it. And I see that in this passage that the same God who promises survival and deliverance could have stopped the storm, could have saved the ship, but he doesn't. And sometimes the way God chooses to save us is by destroying the thing we're most holding on to. And ultimately, it's more glorious. And this is what I have to find hope and trust in. What's more glorious, a ship making it through the storm or 276 people arriving on shore unharmed with no ship? That's amazing. You know, Jonathan Martin in his book, How to Survive a Shipwreck, he writes that shipwrecks are less about holding on than they are about letting go. And to the extent that we experience death, we will also experience resurrection that we cannot walk into the kingdom of God or the grace of God, but we can only be carried. This morning, whether your natural disposition is to despair or to run, to try to save the ship or leave it, perhaps the call this morning is the same, to keep up your courage. You may lose a lot, 
but this shipwreck will not destroy you. You still have work to do, and the same ship that you tried to save will be, might be the driftwood that carries you to the shores of your new calling. Those who try to save their lifeboats will lose them, but those who are willing to lose them for Christ's sake will live. God does not keep us from storms or from shipwrecks, but if we can put our hope in his promise instead of our efforts, we very well might live. And maybe if you took a moment to hear about the shipwreck that you're currently in, the storm that you're currently battling, you would hear from God that actually... The ship isn't meant to stay. It's actually supposed to go. He could save it, but it's not meant for you. Some of you this morning, you know what your ship is. And the second I started talking about it, you knew it, but you haven't listened for what God is saying to you. Can you do that this morning? When you do, you come to this table like the men aboard that ship, taking their last meal before throwing the rest of the cargo overboard, saying, God, I surrender to whatever comes my way after this. I've been holding on. I've been fighting. I've been doing everything I can to save this thing. But you know what? It's actually out of my control. And so, Jesus, in this moment, I surrender to you. Everything I am is yours again. It is rooted in that memory that we were purchased, that our lives were shipwrecks before we knew Jesus. And he delivered us from those shipwrecks, and he will deliver us yet again in this time. When you take the body and blood of Jesus this morning, you're declaring once again that your survival does not rest in your hands, but in the hands of the one that died so that you may live. He is good. Taking his body and his blood means to take his word and his promise promise once again. Can you do that this morning? I'm going to pray for us, and then Lucas is going to come up and invite or take communion. But I invite you, as you close your eyes with me, Jesus, what is the ship in our lives? What is the thing that we're holding on to, the thing that we are gripping for dear life? Doing everything in our power to save it, to fix it, when in actuality you're calling us to let go. Jesus, you know the lives of these microchurch leaders. You know the lives of the people in this room. And Jesus, you also know the promise that you have for them. Jesus, I'm asking you right now, this morning, they don't need just a word from me. They need a word from you, God. What is it that you have to say about the storm and the shipwreck that they're in, Jesus? Is the call to keep up their courage? Is the call to let the ship go? What is the word that you have for them this morning? Jesus, regardless, we say as a community, we surrender to you. And we say that your word, your promise, your life is so infinitely better than what we could ever do or concoct or imagine, Jesus. That God, would you help us to trust in you? Would you remind us again this morning? Jesus, you are Lord in the shipwreck. 
that God, our calling does not negate the presence of shipwrecks, but the presence of shipwrecks does not negate the presence of our calling. Would you remind us, would you call us again, Lord?